Father, thank you that you have called us and set this place for this day. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, O Lord, be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Turn with me to Psalm 103 in the Bibles there, or you can look on the insert in your bulletin. Sorry, Psalm 104. I was looking at Psalm 103 as I said that. Psalm 104 is today. Last week we looked at Psalm 103, and the scholar and pastor Derek Kidner, if I can paraphrase him, called this pair of psalms bright stars unparalleled in the galaxy of the Psalter. These two psalms together are psalms of praise, and 105 and 106 follow along in that pattern, but these two especially stand out. We looked at Psalm 103 last week. Psalm 103 looks at the beauty of God's creation and humanity and calls us to praise His name. Psalm 104 turns the attention and focuses more on the rest of God's creation, following in many ways the pattern of Genesis 1, but not exactly the pattern of Genesis 1, looking at the various ways that God created, separating various things, making light and dark, the sea and the land, animals, and the pinnacle of His creation, humanity. We've been looking at the Psalms here in the summer uh, in part because it's a nice time to pause and reflect. Pastor Charles Spurgeon took Psalm 104, the end of it where it talks about meditating on God, preached a whole sermon just on meditating, and called out the need to pause in life at times, even pause each day. And not just read the scriptures, not just listen to the sermons, but to reflect on what they, what they say and what you've heard. The Psalms are a great opportunity for us in our personal devotional life to let God guide our prayers and to shape our hearts and to teach us how to pray Get us out of some of the old habits and patterns of our prayers. Not that those are bad, but expand our horizons. That we would see the fullness of His beauty. And this psalm, in looking at the rest of creation and the variety of that creation, the diversity of that creation, the majesty of some parts and the the subtleties of other parts, help us to see the magnitude of who the God is who God is that calls us to praise His name. Certain seasons of life, we experience pain and suffering. Many of us even experience depression. Our souls are downcast in the words of the psalmist. I said last week, quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher and teacher, That in the Psalms, we learn at times how to talk to ourselves. Psalm 42, David says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? His soul, Jones says, had been depressing him, crushing him. So David stands up and he says, Self, 
listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Sometimes we listen to ourselves when we should be talking to ourselves. Preaching to ourselves, Lloyd-Jones says. And so the Psalms teach us how to talk to ourselves in a way that refreshes and lifts us out of that depression. Not only that, but the Psalms unite us in our song and in our expression with generations throughout church history. These are songs not written by humans, but penned by God himself. By his Holy Spirit leading his people, David, of course, and many others, to write songs that were from the very mouth of God. And we aren't the first ones to sing these. So many of the songs we sing originated a few years back, maybe a few decades. Some others go back a few hundred years, but still the Psalms go back to the writing of them. Some 3,000 years in some cases. How beautiful is it for us to join with the chorus of praise and prayer that has been going on for millennia across not just our country and our place, but across cultures around the world in different languages and yet saying the same thing and praising the same God. Gordon Fee says the Psalms, like no other literature, lift us to a position where we can commune with God, capturing a sense of the greatness of His kingdom and a sense of what living with him for eternity will be like. The psalm opens with a simple phrase, you are very great. And that falls flat for me in some ways because it's one of these descriptors that's somewhat generic, but I think it's used intentionally here to not limit the greatness of the God that's presented. I'm going to read the psalm today in sections, in stanzas, combining two of the stanzas, and then discuss them each along the way. As we go, I want us also to note that the psalm is bookmarked by imperatives. This psalm, like the last one, begins with the imperative, the instruction to us as humans to bless the Lord, O my soul. And it closes with the same instruction. Bless the Lord, Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. We also find, interestingly, two other instructions in here. And the first one, to praise or to bless the Lord. The second one is to meditate on His good things. I'm looking ahead. Turn over to verse 34, where he says, My meditation, may my meditation... Be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. It's an instruction for us to pause as we read this, and that's exactly what we're going to do at reading stanza to stanza, to pause and to consider it. I may even allow some times of silence just to let you let the words sink in. And then this interesting command that we'll address closer to the end in verse 35, a prayer. David is telling us to pray this prayer. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Let me just summarize that and say that it is is instruction for us to desire and pray for the banishment of evil 
and corrupting influence. Like Revelation says at the very last chapter, come Lord Jesus, like we pray each time we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. The psalmist is instructing us to desire that place where suffering and evil and even death itself will no longer exist in God's creation. It's in that place that when it happens that we will find our fullest fulfillment. It's a striking note here, and I'll just leave it out there as a little bit of a cliffhanger on why David would, 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 would say his words, choose those particular words. But the instruction to desire that banishment of evil should be plain enough. Let's begin reading with verse 1 here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. The imagery is so rich there that I think you could read over that stanza 10, 12 times and still get more and more out of the picture that's being presented. The picture and the illustrations are of something that's too great to describe, again, like the book of Revelation, using human terms to describe what only heaven can contain. For God to describe his very clothing as like light itself. What can light clothe? Light it reveals, and yet God's being, His existence, when we read about it in Scripture, is always so bright that people have to turn their eyes away. And that brightness is always tied with God's goodness, His holiness, and tied with our shortcomings and our sin. And how the, the two, light and darkness, can have no connection. And yet, the whole of redemptive history, the whole of the Bible tells of how God brings these irreconcilable things back together. He describes His dwelling place like a tent, but a tent that has no ends as big as the heavens are. Looking at all of the stars, He stretches it out and then He describes this is his chambers or his house as one that's built on the waters themselves. Some of the most impressive pictures you see in things like Microsoft puts these pictures on my computer all the time. Most impressive ones are when they build things on the water, right? With piers, and usually they're on sandy places or something. But occasionally they're out deeper and what God is describing here is setting foundations in such a deep place that no human being is capable of building that type of structure. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the clouds and rides on the wings of the wind, the wind being able to blow amazingly fast. And, and he even describes his messengers 
which are sometimes angels and sometimes human messengers, ambassadors, as being winds themselves. In other words, he gives his angels and his messengers abilities to spread his good news in a way that is uncomparable to anything else we have, even in our technological age. And his ministers or servants, a flaming fire, powerful, bright, shining. This is who God is. The first stanza focuses our attention on God and shows us why to praise Him. But then it goes further to direct our attention to the earth itself. And in this, we still see not just the glory of the earth, but the glory of the God who made the earth. He says, he, verse 5, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. Referring to the Genesis creation account where the waters are everywhere. But perhaps a small allusion to uh, the, uh, the, the Noahic uh, account of the flood where the waters were above the mountains. And yet... Verse 7, at your rebuke, at the word of God, at the sound of your thunder, the waters took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Some of you have probably already picked up that it was Psalm 104 that I read on our vacation up to uh, Glacier National Park and seeing the Grand Teton Mountain Range and the splendor of those mountains reminded me of this psalm and it was one that we used in a small worship service in Glacier and I meditated on while we were out in the beauty of God's creation. To go to the mountains and to look on them, to go to the ocean and look out at its vastness is to remind us that these things are small and completely obedient to the mighty words of God and His power. They obey God. The thunder itself obeys God. Verse 10, continuing on, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. 
from the magnitude of the mountains and the oceans. God draws our attention now to the intricacy of his design that includes the provision for even the smallest of creatures. He provides what in these verses? He provides water for life and for vitality. He provides the food. He provides a home for each living thing. No thing is too small for him, whether it's the largest of birds, storks, or small birds that find their home in the tops of the trees. He provides homes for the rock badgers in the, cre- in the, in the caves and in the rocks on the hill. He even delights in the goats that wander around on the top of the mountain ridges, high above, and yet somehow they have a home in those places as well. He's made each of those things to reflect his glory, and we can't help but look on the beauty of the intricacy of those things and see a designer's hand at work. The story of origins were an important part of ancient culture. Each culture would have some type of story that described where things came from, how they came to be. Those stories differ. Oftentimes, you see parallels in God's creation story that's found in Genesis with these other ancient creation stories. And one of the ways that, we are, uh, that, that the Bible explains that we're to understand that is that God's people were familiar with many of these creation stories. Having lived in Egypt for, for, for hundreds of years as slaves, the people that Moses wrote to and that heard Genesis first were intimately in, familiar with those creation stories that were a part of the Egyptian culture. This psalm even parallels an ancient Near Eastern Egyptian hymn in many ways, but it differs in other ways. And those differences in Genesis and in this psalm are always intended to be a correction to our understanding. You see, those other creation stories tend to explain that it was various gods who were warring against each other. And in that chaos, out of that chaos, sprang the world we live in that's characterized, they say, by chaos and conflict. In contrast, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob explains it this way. He says, no, I created all things good with order in separation, distinctness, and yet unity. A plan and relationship between humans and also between humans and God and even the angelic beings. But something entered into that plan and broke it. And it was the angels who rebelled against God and the humans who listened to those rebellious angels. And with the beauty and the strength and the the, the ability of this creation to make decisions, humanity rejected God and said, I have a better way. This fruit here looks beautiful to the eye. And gazing, instead of the beauty all around them, they fixed their eyes on the tempting beauty that was 
prohibited. Now, isn't that what we're so prone to? To have all this beauty all around us, and yet our eyes are fixed on the one thing that we know we can't have. And we tell ourselves, look over here, and yet our, our hearts draw us back to that one thing. Or maybe it's many things. For most of it, it's many things. And we don't even understand why we do it. And yet it keeps drawing us back to that place. And part of the reason that we keep going back to that place is because we don't understand the words in the stanza of Psalm 19 in the concept that he made day and night. He made the seasons. Knowing his creations need both work and rest, God made the seasons day and night. We're not talking here about winter and spring and summer and fall. We're talking about God made the moon. And at first I thought the moon, oh yeah, we used to mark seasons by this, but no, it's talking about cycles of day and night because he explains, he says, the lion and the other creatures, they prowl at night when the humans are asleep and then, and then the lions go to sleep and then the humans wake up during the day and they do their work during the day and then it all starts again and it goes over and over and God makes this kaleidoscope of his creation in a way that complements and works together. What God is saying is that we need to be reminded of his rest we need to experience his rest in order for our work to be meaningful. We need to work hard when we're called to work in order for our rest to be sweet. Some of us rest too much. We're lazy. And some of us work too much and never rest. God has made us and those lions and all of his creatures to work and also to rest. This brings us to a surprising stanza in some ways. 24, 24 to 26. Did I skip ahead without reading verse 19? I think I did. Now that I've explained 19 and 23, let me read it. Now go on to read through 26. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Now verse 24 Somewhat surprising stanza. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it.
Are you a snorkeler? I've tried snorkeling multiple times here. I can never find the fish. I know they're out there and the ancient culture knew that the sea was teeming with it. Those who would go out on ships, and when I do go out on ships, I can see things down below and, and have seen the, the, the many things swimming. The, 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 the ocean holds this fullness of a diversity of creatures. But what's kind of surprising in this passage is that in verse 26, it says, there go the ships. And you think God didn't make the ships. God made all the sea creatures, but it was humans who made the ships. One of the funnest questions to ask our kids that comes from the kids' catechism is, you know, who made you? Well, God. And then the next question is, what else did God make? All things. What does that mean? And they start listing the mountains and the trees and the hills and the, the, the rivers and the oceans. And then they start saying the cars and the houses and the, all these other things that, of course, human ingenuity made and yet this psalm this psalm and this verse says that the kids are right because it was God who made humans with the ability to make all these things and to give humanity a creative ability that none of the other creatures have and it was God who has fashioned the thing that makes these other things and so the kids are right. The beauty of the things that humanity makes should remind us of the beauty of God and His creative ability. Let, let me say that again to make sure it sinks in. The beauty of the things that humanity makes should remind us of the beauty of God and the way He's made us to make other things. And I think that this is a place where sometimes we separate out what God does and what humans do too much. And it leads us to think when we, when we look at art, when we enjoy the creation of a musician or the beauty of architecture around us, or the ingenuity of a, a brilliant machine. All respect to J.R.R. Tolkien, but he was very anti-machine. And I think he made a mistake in this. I love his books, but machines can be beautiful things that the hands of humans make because God has made them to be able to make them. Now, machines and art and even architecture can be abused. One of the tragedies of the 1960s and 70s was a movement that took all kind of aesthetic appeal out of some architecture. Yeah. And you see housing projects, and you see this in communist countries oftentimes where function trumped any kind of form. And as Christians, we should recognize that ostentatious displays of wealth are wrong, but so is an oversimplification of architecture that removes all beauty from the things that God has made us to make. The church likewise has, over recent centuries, withdrawn largely from its investment and in time in the arts. The amount of money we even pay 
to present music that glorifies God. Bach was employed by the church. Bach, of course, was known, but many other musicians were employed by the church just to create beautiful music that glorifies God. Of course, many artists, visual artists, painters, and sculptors were also employed by the church or by Christians desiring to create this beauty around us that we should see as God's creative work through his human creation. I hope that as a church, we can restore some of that. It's part of the reason that we try to do uh, concerts in various places, the backyard concerts, and to promote different forms of art. And we've partnered with different people in times past, but I'm always looking for opportunities to do that. Host an art show. Attend art shows. Encourage artists. Buy a piece of art from artists that you like. These are not frivolous purchases. They're important in the kingdom of God. As important are the ships and even Leviathan. It's interesting here. I'm going to come back to this at the end to Leviathan. Of course, mysterious creature. We don't know really what it is. Um, But let's just pause there and continue on to verse 27 here. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. It is God who gives life. It's God who breathed into Adam and Eve and gave them breath that's described as life. It is humanity has rejected God and brought death into the earth, but not not in some kind of opposition or outside of the sovereign will of God. Not a hair falls to the ground. Not a person takes their last breath except that God is in control of all those things. It is at the same time a troubling doctrine to think that it is God who is in control of all those things and yet it's more troubling to consider a God who can't control those things. To consider a God who's only partly in control and the rest of things are just spinning out of hand. Part of the beauty of this psalm is that it goes back and forth from past tense to present tense. Do you notice that? Verse 5. Verse 5. Go back, just read the first verses. He set the earth. Past tense. Verse 10. You make springs gush forth. Present tense. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. Verse 27, these all look to you present tense. God did all these things in the past, but he continues to do them. He's not some type of deistic God who set things in motion and now just lets them run their course. 
that is a growing position of many in the culture today that God is out of control and things are just set on their course and he left the rest to us. But what this psalm reminds us is that God is always in control. And though we may not see his hand and though we may sink into depression or even sink into a place that is far from God, the call to us to praise the Lord and to talk to ourselves and to tell us these things, to read the psalm and to delight in his glory reminds us that there is joy even in that suffering. Because God is there in that suffering and walks with us. It reminds us that we can be freed from our anxiety that so many of us struggle with. And Jesus picked up on this theme in Matthew 6 when he's giving his Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And yet your heavenly Father... Do you you suffer from anxiety? I oftentimes suffer from anxiety. Oftentimes on the subject of provision. And Jesus says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Are you not more value than the birds? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Anxiety and stress cause a staggering number of health issues in our current culture. Anxiety levels and stress levels are probably at all times high. I'd like to press that idea a little bit further and suggest that anxiety and stress cause an even greater number of spiritual problems today an even greater number of spiritual problems today. Spurgeon, in that sermon on meditating, called on Christians to this active practice of meditation. He said, why don't you do it? It's because you you feel like you've got to get to work too soon for the day. You don't have time. He says, he challenges his audience even back then. We think, oh, they had so much more time. Spend 15, 30 minutes. Wake an hour at 15 or 30 minutes earlier. Break from your meal 15 to 30 minutes earlier. He says, we need this cycle of rest if our work is to be effective for God. We need this cycle of rest to calm our anxieties and look to God as the provider and trust that he will. We need this cycle of rest or else our life becomes like a story. It's, it's fairly stark when he tells it. I read it to Mandy yesterday. I'm going to tell a little bit softened version. If you want the real version, I'll I'll send it to you. He says, when we don't rest, when we don't meditate on God, when we don't make time for this, our life is like a blacksmith who lived in ancient times under a king. And the king came to this blacksmith and he said, make me a chain of links this long. And he didn't pay the blacksmith or anything. The blacksmith makes the chain of links. He takes it back to the monarch. The monarch says, now double the size. Not giving him any more resources. The blacksmith goes back, works forever, goes back to the king. And he says, still needs to be bigger. More links to the chain. 
He goes back and he works. And this cycle continues for years and years and years and still no payment or any resources to make the chain. And finally, the last meeting of the two, he goes to him and the king says, bind the man with his chains and cast him into the deep. And Spurgeon says, when we avoid our rest and meditation, we are building those links for a cruel master whose name is the devil, who never pays us and has us do our work, not for heavenly benefit, but ultimately for our demise. And we slowly kill ourselves for no reward at all. Are you resting in Christ? In the night, in your meditation, in your worship on Sundays, in your family times of worship, where do you find that rest? Have you made time for it? Verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. And let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Having already covered meditation and running short on time here, let me jump to verse 35. Why close with such stark words as let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more? It seems like a non sequitur from the rest of the psalm. A a stark way to end a perfectly beautiful meditation. David is not identified as the author in this, in the uh, Septuagint, the, New Test- the, the, tra- the Greek translation of the Hebrew he is. It's possible that David wrote this as well as Psalm 103. We'll, we'll just say the author for these purposes here. But here's why David does it. Because after delighting in the beauty of so much of God's creation and just reveling in that and seeing how beautiful it is, David could not help but recognizing that there are mars on that creation scars that look like have you ever seen a field that is strip mined where they just take and wipe out everything on the top and dig a hole that there are places in god's creation where it's just been stripped bare and no one went back and planted trees and no one restored anything it is just a black mark on the creation and David looked around and he saw the effect of sin and how selfish ambition and how lustful desires and how envy of other people and how even a rebellion against God and a a desire for autonomy mar God's creation and the beauty that's all around us. 
And David, looking at the beauty, he couldn't help but see the sin as well and the, the scars on the landscape and say, How long, O oh Lord? Why do you let this continue to be? Will you come and will you remove these scars from the earth and will you remove the disease that has so infested the trees that kill all the trees? Remove the disease that is the sin so that the beauty and the fullness of your creation will be there. When we look around at God's creation, we should see the sin and its effects on the trees and the landscape and desire for that sin to be away and done away with. But I, I, I can't think that David or whoever authored this psalm would look and just say, oh, it's everybody else who's at fault here because David was well aware of his own shortcomings and his own heinous sins. And the gaze, I'm sure, quickly turned from others to his own heart in a convicting way to say, how long, O oh Lord, will you let sin reign in my heart that I would continue to make these chains in service of the devil? Cleanse me, David says in his, another psalm. Cleanse me, make me clean, white as snow, so that I can enjoy your beauty, so that I can worship you, so that I can praise your name fully. And that's the call to each of us from this psalm at the end, is to desire for removal of the sin, but also to lead us to a place of worship that includes our confession, but never leads us in that place that is downcast. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has lifted us out of that pit, out of that strip, strip mind, ugly scar and set us in the beauty of the fullness of his creation with a promise of living as we looked at last week in the heavens and the earth the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus is in the practice of calling many other sinners to be restored to that beauty how long O Lord our desire is long enough to call all of those sinners home, but not so long that we don't one day get to enjoy that beauty in its fullness. Isn't that a beauty worth praising God for? Doesn't that reshape our life and our desires? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of all the things that you have made. All things bright and beautiful, the hymnist, the, the hymnist writes. All creatures great and small, the Lord God made them all. Thank you for your promise of provision and your words that assure us that you always are in control. Would you set our heart on your good things and help us to see the beauty all around us and shape our lives that we would enjoy your good things. In Jesus' name, amen. Before the musicians start, I've got to say one more thing. I forgot Leviathan. Anybody else forget Leviathan? Did you notice what it says about it? It says that Leviathan plays and frolics in the ocean. And, and, and who's playing with him? It, it's God. God is frolicking in the ocean with his mighty sea creature like, like kids playing with their parents.
Isn't that a beautiful picture of how God made creation to enjoy and how he's called us to enjoy it? Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Lift up your hearts and enjoy God's good things like God enjoys Leviathan. We don't know what that creature is, and, and I think uh, for the first time, I've been fine to not know what it is. There are many things it could be, but the beauty of it is that God enjoys his good creation.